Welcome to another edition of The Greater Good. The Greater Good is about conversations on policy priorities that matter for our future. And we have those conversations with leaders across Australia as CETA continues to pursue solutions that deliver better economic and social outcomes for the greater good. I'm Jared Ball, Chief Economist of the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. With COVID-19 social restrictions gradually beginning to ease across Australian states, I think many of us are feeling a little bit relieved, whether it's catching up with friends and loved ones or sending the kids back to school. But I think we're also all aware that it's going to take some time for life to get back to normal and that some aspects of our life, like how much we travel, might change forever. Some of the details of what our lives are likely to look like over the coming weeks and months were included in the Group of Eight's report, COVID-19 Roadmap to Recovery, a report for the nation. If you want to get a better picture of what the weeks and months ahead will look like, I can highly recommend the report, and in particular, Chapter 3 on the Controlled Adaptation Strategy. And this is the strategy that essentially we're living right now, as it entails controlling the spread of the virus while making sure that society adapts to live with ongoing infections. I was lucky enough to chat to Professor Tracy Merlin from the University of Adelaide, who led the group examining the option of controlled adaptation. Professor Merlin has been providing advice to governments on public health for the past 20 years. She's the Managing Director and Co-Founder of Adelaide Health Technology Assessment at the University of Adelaide and the Interim Head of the School of Public Health there. Professor Merlin joined me from Adelaide to talk about a range of issues, including how we're managing the gradual unwinding of social restrictions so far and what it might take to have a successful vaccine. I, I think a lot of economists have pretended that they know more about epidemiology in the last few months than they do. I am certainly not one of those um, economists. Uh, I rely on the experts like yourself. So um, it's, um, it's really good that you've been able to make the time to um, come on and have a chat. Well, my, my expertise, I'm not an infectious disease epidemiologist, although I have studied it, um, but I'm a clinical epidemiologist. So my expertise is in health technology assessment, which is looking at uh, evidence, um, what's the evidence behind everything and synthesising that. And so I work uh, with um, health economists quite a bit. Um, and that's part of the reason why I think I was ended up being responsible for this chapter is because I was trying to take pieces of evidence from across different disciplines and try and draw it together to try and come up with a, a sort of a rounded solution, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and for those who haven't um, read the, the Group of Eight report or, mm. the, or the chapter, I mean, I guess starting at the, the top level, what is controlled adaptation and, and how does it differ to the elimination option, which was the other option that appeared in the paper? So uh, controlled adaptation um, is about controlling the spread of the virus while making sure that society adapts to living with an ongoing risk of infection in the community. Um, it's also known in infectious disease epidemiology circles as suppression. Um, but we thought controlled adaptation was a, a more intuitive way of understanding what it's about. Um, elimination, on the other hand, is about um, the eradication 
of community transmission of the virus um, at a state, country level or regional level. And this means that there's no new cases would arise uh, from community transmission or from unknown sources of infection for over two incubation periods. Uh, so it's got quite strict definition. Um, and the reason why we had two different approaches and why um, was simply because um, a, a number of the epidemiologists felt that elimination would be unlikely to be achievable. Um, they are both, both strategies are on the same spectrum, same public health measure spectrum, um, and they both require extensive testing, uh, early detection, contract tracing, isolation of cases and quarantine, all those sorts of things. Um, but elimination is a harsher approach. It requires a complete lockdown um, that lasts until there's no community tr transmission occurring. Um, whereas controlled adaptation allows some normalisation of activity while cases are occurring, um, but a close eye is kept on the case numbers. And um, if they look like they're getting out of control, then some of the restrictions are reimposed. And so just picking up on that, um, obviously my kind of sense is that we're all on kind of the, the controlled adaptation path, but then there are some states that are doing a remarkable job in, in terms of no new cases, including South Australia, which, as I understand it from the latest numbers, hasn't had any new cases since the 7th of May. Um, are we all on the controlled adaptation path or is is total elimination still, you know, possible in any state in Australia or are we, are we all on this path? It's an interesting question. Um, so, and I'm from South Australia, so, uh, um, very pleased to see how we're tracking here. We've had 14 days um, with no new cases. Um, in Australia, we've had about a quarter of cases that are locally acquired from a known case and about 10% that we don't know where the infection came from. Um, and so this community transmission, that's varied quite a bit across the states and that's reflected in those case numbers that you're talking about. So New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland have the highest rates of community transmission, whereas states like South Australia, Western Australia, Northern Territory and the ACT, um, there hasn't, there's been very low or none. Um, and so it's possible we could get elimination in those states, but we won't really be sure of that until the population starts mixing again. Um, and the reason we aren't sure is because you get asymptomatic transmission. So people with no symptoms or very mild symptoms have been infecting other people. Um, and But health authorities only become aware of that, that this the virus is circulating when in one of those transmission chains, somebody becomes symptomatic and gets tested. And of course, the people that are becoming symptomatic are those that are high risk or older. And with the restrictions that we've been having, those people have been isolating themselves. So we haven't got our little barometer showing us how much, um, how much uh, transmission there is. Now, once the restrictions have lifted uh, and the population's mixing, um, if we find that there are no cases arising then, then uh, we can be reasonably confident that we've eliminated it. But it's really important then to make sure that our borders are uh, maintained because there's always a risk that it can be imported, um, virus can be imported with somebody that's infected. 
yeah, and plenty plenty of discussion at the moment on on state borders certainly. Mm. Um, so we're we're very early in this journey, and I think your comments then just make that clear in terms of you know we are seeing some of the restrictions lifted, but but you know um, there's still a lot more mixing that will that will go on, and we'll understand then better um, just where we're at. How do you think we're travelling so far at this early stage um, in relation to things like our effective reproductive numbers, but also around our testing and our tracing um, strategies? Are we are we doing a are we doing an all right job? We're doing a great job, I think. But I'm a little bit biased, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I think from from an international perspective, Australia is doing very well. Um, our effective reproduction number is below one at the moment. Uh, testing rates per capita are amongst the, are amongst the highest in the world. Uh, our contact tracing has been really comprehensive. So if we've had an identified case, then all the different contacts are found. Um, our case numbers and deaths have been manageable uh, for our health system. Um, we were lucky uh, compared to some countries because we had some time to prepare and the government actually listened to the public health advice, which a number of other countries that also had time to prepare um, didn't do. They didn't listen to their advisors and now they're wearing the consequences. And we're also lucky because we're an island uh, and our government decided to close our borders early. A lot of our cases were imported um, and so we, by, by closing the borders, we were able to control it uh, early on and keep that community transmission quite low. And so if we're, we're you know, don't want to become too complacent, um, and I think, I think there's been a lot of message, public messaging around that from um, politicians and others, um, if there's anything that you could see in the coming weeks and months where we sort of try to bolster our strategies, whether that's you know, at a public policy level or organisations and individuals. Um, are there any things you'd like to, you'd like to see um, people keep in mind? Um, I, I think the government's got the right approach. I mean, I would because they're following the controlled adaptation strategy and that's what we'd suggested. Um, but it's the complacency thing. Um, and it's, this hasn't, the virus hasn't gone. Um, and we know how quickly it can turn on a dime. You'll get this rapid escalation from just one individual in a vulnerable population. So that would be in our um, uh, aged care homes, um, places like that, uh, hospitals, those sorts of things. You can see how suddenly um, a whole heap of people can get sick. Um, and then there's this risk of these super spreader events where, and I don't think the government has in, an intention of allowing a lot of people getting together in any time soon, uh, large numbers of people. Those are, the, those are a major risk. If you have one person who's infected asymptomatically, may not know that they're sick, and then they're, they're walking through a crowd and um, or in a cr crowded conditions or on a... Uh, those sorts of circumstances, it can spread quite quickly. So people really need to, you know, maintain physical distancing, um, keep their hand hygiene there, download the app so that we can, um, so the contact tracers can uh, identify who they've been in contact with for, you know, a sufficient period of time. Those are the things that people can do on an individual level. But of course, I suspect, you know, people will revert back to their, 
usual ways of doing things. It just needs to be constant reminders that we need to do that. And, you know, that will, some, some of that will come from organisations that are reworking the way we need to work. Um, we've got, um, I know we're working at our university at the moment trying to work out um, how many people we can fit in each space um, to maintain the four metre square rule. Um, how can we work out how many people can go in the lift to get into the buildings? Um, every organisational will need some sort of plan to do that. Um, and we're just going to have to maintain that. That's, that's going to be the biggest challenge. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, if I just think about even uh, for me and, and my household, I think as the restrictions of loosened a little bit you you get a little bit comfortable and you you feel like life is going to gradually um return to normal but i think to your point about remaining vigilant i think mm. the report also to me something that really stuck out at me when i read it um which was a real reality check um there's a table you know setting out what controlled adaptation looks like in the immediate term medium term and then the end game and when i looked at the um, end game, which was, which was funnily enough where my attention was drawn, um, you know, basically says to me, until there is a vaccine, life is going to remain really different. Um, and in particular, uh, around overseas travel and, and mass gatherings. Um, yes. and so all of this comes down to vaccine development and we're seeing, you know, in, encouraging stories, um, every day, but, is it realistic to think that we'll have a vaccine next year? And, and what, what happens if we never see a vaccine, which has kind of been the case in the past with some of these viruses? Well, um, I don't think coronaviruses have, have had much attention for vaccine development. I think that's been part of the problem um, until SARS came along. And um, the vaccine that was developed for SARS um, had some significant adverse effects, um, so it ended up being shelved. Um, it was almost more worse to have the vaccine than than actually get the get it um, the infection. So, um, but at least they've got had that to build on um, with the uh, current vaccine development that's occurring. And there are a lot of um, vaccines uh, being developed, and a number of other that are in trials. Um, some experts are saying that we sh we will have a vaccine by you know the middle of next year by twenty mid twenty twenty one. I'm not as um, optimistic as that. Uh, I think we may we may well have have some data back on on vaccine. You know because we've got some there's some human trials occurring in the UK. Um, but there's some key hurdles that need to be overcome first. So the first is the vaccine safety. And as I said, that there were problems of that with SARS. Um, the trials need to show that there is an immune, immune response. Um, and if there is an immune response, and that's an if, um, if there is an immune response, we have to have some assurance about the duration of that immune response because... Um, you can have antibodies and, you know, in some cases, you know, you see with most, vac a lot of vaccines, you need a booster shot because of the, um, the immunity wanes. Um, so we don't have much idea at the moment about um, how this particular virus uh, works or its impact on the immune system in the long term. 
Um, then there's the practical issue of trying to produce the vaccine on a huge scale. We need billions of potential doses. Um, we need um, the medicine regulators in each country to approve it, uh, approve the evidence that's, that's supplied. Um, we need some prioritisation about who's going to get vaccinated first, um, particularly early on in the development. And then there's the, just the logistical challenge of trying to vaccinate the world's population. Um, so, uh, and, and also in that um, mix is the fact that we know that vaccinating uh, elderly people um, and their immune response um, is a lot worse than, you know, um, non-elderly people. Um, so we don't know that the group that's going to be have the highest risk are necessarily going to be have the same amount of protection from a vaccine as other people would get. So unfortunately, it's not a simple thing um, of, uh, you know, having a vaccine. Uh, we all want it to be here by the middle of next year, but um, the, I suspect that there will be some quite significant um, practical challenges. Yeah, I think. And um, so, so the end game remains uncertain. Um, I think I think that's the that's kind of the the message at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not banking on a trip to Canada or anything anytime <laughs> soon. I think um, although I'd love to, I think even if we do manage the international travel, we'll still have quarantines in place, or or we need better testing. Um, at the moment, our antibody testing isn't very accurate, um, so people that have already encountered the virus and have an immune response to it, it's not really well captured in the current antibody tests. Um, until that gets fixed, we haven't got a quick way of determining whether somebody's safe to go into a, another country, in which case there'll be, um, you know, the usual two-week quarantine. And if you only get four weeks leave a year, you know, two weeks sitting in a hotel isn't much fun um, no. <laughs> if you're wanting to travel somewhere. No, no. Um, and so, you know, not 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 the most optimistic news on the end game, but I do, I generally try and finish these things on a, on a somewhat optimistic note. And, and perhaps in this case, I'll try and end it on both an optimistic and a, and a slightly nerdy um, <laughs> note as well. Um, I think it's really interesting towards the end of um, the chapter on controlled adaptation. It makes this point around the difficulty of decision-making that we've seen and, and balancing competing concerns and obviously the, the health and economic um, concerns have, have been a wicked challenge from the first uh, day of this pandemic. But then on the other hand, the report kind of suggests there's all this amazing capacity for economic modelling, epidemiological modelling and simulation and multi-criteria analysis, all these things that, that um, you know, economists like me get quite uh, excited about. Um, but of course, all of that is sitting across different parts of our, um, you know, academia and, and others and very fragmented. Um, what have we got to do to get better coordination on that? And is it is one of the silver linings out of this crisis that we've seen people come together very quickly to work on policy and decision making? Um, and even the Group of Eight report itself, I think, is an amazing kind of achievement of uh, a lot of talented individuals over a very short period of time. Um, is there something that we can take out of this and, and do that will help us for not only the next crisis, but, but perhaps, you know, future public health issues and, and other policy issues? I think um, in this particular case, it was 
the rapidity that was needed, the fact that everybody had to come together very fast and try and come up with decisions in an evidence vacuum, essentially. There was hardly any information out there. Um, the information that was there was quite very poor quality. I mean, we were getting case series published in The Lancet and the New England Journal. You'd never see that, um, you know, about the cases that are coming out of, of China and what the, the conditions were. Um, we, we were fortunate that a few individuals in Australia were doing um, epidemiological modelling uh, on, uh, f you know, flu models and um, other types of, uh, of models and that those could be adapted uh, quite quickly and the government took full advantage of that. And that's what we had to rely on. We had to rely on the models because, um, and with the, and the inputs into those models coming from the, you know, the available evidence that was there, even if it wasn't great, but at least it was something. So you can get some sort of estimate of what the impact would be and help with the planning. Uh, I agree, it's really one lesson that we've learned, about, I mean, the government's learned this from national cabinet, forming national cabinet and trying to get decision-making uh, centralised and coordinated. That's been a terrific initiative. Um, same in academia, this GO8 uh, report, uh, we'd never done anything like this before. And there are quite a few lessons that came out of it that we probably wouldn't do again. Um, but there are some things that were really, really, really good and really helpful to try and pull all that expertise all together. Um, at once. And so I think that is the, the silver lining that's come out of this. We know we've got this capability um, and we've done it once and we could do it again and we could do it again in a better way. Well, you've, you've delivered on my continuing KPI to end on a positive note with these <laughs> podcasts. Um, so thank you so much, Tracy. I've, I've learned a lot from um, reading your chapter and, and getting to talk to you. And I think I think everyone else um, listening to this um, podcast amongst the CEDA membership and others will um, as well. And some really important messages, I think, for all of us um, as these restrictions, you know, are gradually unwound that um, we've, there's no room for complacency and we need to, need to keep a really keen eye on this virus. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for um, listening. It's been an interesting conversation. Thanks, Tracy. <laughs> Thanks for listening in to The Greater Good. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform. And for more COVID-19 coverage, such as our blogs and live streams, jump onto the CEDA website, cedar.com.au. You'll now also find a lot of our COVID-19 coverage in our recovery series on the website, Coming Back Better. Finally, keep up to date with everything CEDA is doing in real time by following CEDA on social media. You'll even find me there too, uh, and always happy to take people's questions and feedback. Please tune in next time, and until then, stay safe.